John's Gospel, chapter 12. This really gives us tremendous insight to Judas. Now, we don't know about Judas's calling. It doesn't, Scripture doesn't identify it. Obviously, he was called and chosen like the others. You remember, there were many who followed Jesus from John's baptism of him on. But there were 12 of that many who Jesus called out to be disciples, and Jesus chose and called Judas. So he was one of those 12. Background, we don't know much about. His name means Jehovah leads, so he probably came from a Hebrew family who had faith in God, obviously. Iscariot means basically the place that he came from. But the fact that he was the one who carried the money, you cannot deny the fact that that meant he had the trust of the group. You don't give the money to someone you're not sure about, all right? I mean, that's clear. So the, the amazing sort of juxtaposition that the traitor was the one who carried the money indicates that he was not a shady-looking guy. He didn't look at Judas and go, now, he's going to be the one. In fact, you might look at some of the others and say they might be the one, but not Judas, right? I mean, he's level-headed. He's trustworthy. We give him the money. We can trust him. You don't give the money to people that you can't trust, so don't, don't lose sight of that. So we know that he apparently had some sense of, of, of confidence about him, some sense of trustworthiness, a lot of sense of trustworthiness, perhaps good with money, whatever. But they chose him, of all of them, to be the one that actually handled the cash, actually kept it. And so we see something happen. Now, Judas is watching Jesus this whole three years, and let's say the last 18 months, day and night. And, and the disciples see some, you know, they see some absolutely mind-blowing things. They see him calm the sea. They see him walk on the surface of the water. They see him feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people with a small lunch. They see him, on numerous occasions, make blind eyes open and deaf ears hear and lame people walk. And then they've seen him raise men from the dead. And he talks constantly, doesn't he, in these last few months about his kingdom, his kingdom, his kingdom. Now, obviously, I mean, they, even, even all the disciples, even Peter and, and that Andrew, James, and John, they didn't fully grasp what the kingdom meant, really, until that first Sunday night after the resurrection in the upper room, and certainly maybe not fully even until the Pentecost came on them. So don't, don't you know, they, they all were, the only concept they had of a kingdom was the kingdom of David, which was an earthly kingdom with geographical boundaries and armies and, and the Romans no longer there and Israel as the powerhouse in the Mideast region. That's what they wanted and that's what they expected Jesus to do when he set up his kingdom. And the kingdom of David and Solomon was an amazingly powerful and wealthy kingdom. You remember that. And so they were thinking that the new kingdom will be even more powerful and more wealthy than the kingdom of David. Well, Judas is expecting, okay, I'll travel all over Palestine here, up and down the Jordan River, all around the Sea of Galilee, those dangerous streets of Jerusalem. We'll sleep out in the grass. We'll will not know from day to day where we're going. I'll put up with all of that because there will come a day when he's finally going to announce to the world he's the king and he will take all of his power that he has to calm the ocean, to, to feed, multiply millions of people if he needed to, and to raise the dead. He will take all of that power and he will focus it, focus it toward the Romans and they will be defeated, not at all unlike uh, 
Pharaoh was defeated uh, when, when God caused the sea of, uh, Red Sea to cover up his armies. There would be something similar to that. Jesus is a kind of a Moses, and, and the, the armies, the Romans, will be defeated, and Jesus will set up an earthly kingdom, and guess who's going to handle all the money in this wealthy kingdom? It'll be Judas. He'll be the treasurer. He's going to handle all the money. He's going to be rich beyond his wildest imagination. Powerful beyond his wildest imagination. That is obviously what Judas thinks. So he's willing to go along with this for as long as it takes because there's this amazing payout he sees at the end. But as it gets closer and closer to the end, he does not like what he's seeing and he's frustrated by it. And we see that frustration really come to fore here in John's Gospel, chapter 12. So six days before the Passover, Jesus was in Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he'd raised from the dead, just raised a man from the dead. And they were giving a dinner for him, and Martha served, and Lazarus was there reclining at the table. I mean, here's a guy who was once dead, now alive, and he's talking and eating. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, in the first century, there were terrible odors and terrible smells everywhere. And you didn't have hot running water. You didn't take a lot of baths. So the perfume that would cover all that up was extremely expensive and valuable and precious. And a, a, a container like this would last a year or more by, by, by far. Just unheard of to take this one container that you would slowly dip it out for special occasions. Just throw it all on the feet of Jesus at one time. So much of the whole house filled with the smell of it. And verse four, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him said, verse five, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, clearly he's not going to say, Hey, that was a waste. We should have kept that for ourselves. That would look pretty obvious, right? So he says something. He thinks he'll get the disciples on his side. And in fact, he actually does get the disciples on his side. That's another freaky thing about this. He doesn't say, hey, we could have used that money for ourselves because he knows the disciples would have said, well, this is Jesus. We need to use it for him. So he says something else. He said, hey, we could have used that money to feed the poor. And the other disciples sort of agree. Yeah, we could have used that money to feed the poor, couldn't we? Now, the gospel writer, just so we know that Judas could care less about the poor, <laughs> the gospel writer actually tells us, John does, in no uncertain terms, plain and simple, he who was about to betray him said this. And he says, he said this not because, verse 6, he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So he's already, he's already stealing the money. He's, he's already skimming it. He's already embezzling it, Right? And now he, he wants his 300 denarii because he can skim and embezzle that. John makes it really clear. He cares little about the poor. He only cares about Judas. But one thing that we can see that, that the story of Judas really makes abundantly clear is when Paul writes these words to young Timothy, that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not that money is the root of all evil. Money isn't evil. It isn't good. It isn't anything. It is money. But the love of it. And goodness knows how many lives have been totally destroyed 
How many careers have been destroyed? How many families have been destroyed? Because people pursued money. They felt like having money would make them finally happy. When you see that, 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 that Judas here is desirous of money more than anything else, and he's sitting down with Lazarus, for goodness sakes, a man who'd been dead and now is alive, don't you think you'd rather have the power of the resurrection of life than money? No. It's like that doesn't even affect him. Okay, he was dead, now he's alive. But how can I turn this into cash? I mean, he's so blinded by his love of money. And in that, he really believes that money will, will, will fill this amazing black hole that is in his heart. And Satan has convinced him that if he just had enough money, he would be happy, he would be content, he would be powerful, people would respect him, he would find, could go on and on and on. So we see as the treasurer, stealing from the treasury, wanting this money, not caring about the poor. John said he could care less about it. He cared about himself. It was all money for him. What can I get out of it? How does this work for me? How does this benefit me? Because if it doesn't benefit me, it's not real. Does that sound familiar? If I'm not getting out of this what I think I should, and time and time again, Jesus makes it so abundantly clear what he offers. He offers his love, his his presence. He offers eternal life. None of us deserve any of that. I told you last week or two weeks ago that when Jesus healed the man brought in by four, first thing he said was, your sins are forgiven. And probably that man said, well, that's good and well, but I can't walk. You know, thinking my bigger need is that I can walk. And, and from his perspective, it was. But his biggest need was not his inability to walk. His biggest need was where is he going to spend all eternity? Because that was 2,000 years ago. And that man is celebrating around God's throne today. But Judas never grasped that. It was all about me, all about now, all about what am I going to get out of this? And that is a path that leads to total destruction, sorrow, it leads a wake of misery, and we see that in Judas. So we see a man here who was willing to literally follow Jesus as close as the other 11, to identify with him as close as the other 11. We don't see Judas arguing with Jesus about theology. We don't see Judas arguing with Peter and James and John, even about who's going to be the greatest. We see Judas going along. He fit in. As I said, perhaps the most chilling thing about Judas is it makes us force us to examine ourselves. We examine ourselves against the world. We say, well, I'm fine. I'm a member of a Baptist church. I'm fine because I have been baptized. I'm fine because there's a list of things that I don't do. At least I don't do them as often as most people do. I own a Bible. I open it up once in a while. I can sing songs when I go to church. I pray before I eat sometimes. I mean, you know, I may not be Billy Graham, but, you know, I'm not Mussolini either, you know. And so I'm, 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 and that kind of false hope and false security. Judas is this huge warning to all of us. Just because you hang out with Christians, because you join a church, just because you say I'm one of his doesn't make you one of his. Neither does your perfection. Because as we've said time and time and time again, as the scripture records the stories of the disciples, most of the time when it records something of the disciples prior to the resurrection of Jesus, it's something they've done wrong. It's something they said they shouldn't have. 
And Peter's at the top of that list. And no one fails more publicly than Peter. And we started this discussion of disciples with Simon Peter, who boldly said, I will never forsake you. I will never, I will die first. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, before the sun comes up, you'll not deny me once, but three times. And he absolutely did deny Jesus three times. But he was broken by that. He was repentant of that. It's not a matter of whether or not we live a sinless, perfect life. As I read from Romans 8, none of us are perfect. But what is your heart? Peter, when when he no doubt caught a glimpse of Jesus as Jesus came out of the high priest Caiaphas' house that night, and he heard the rooster crow, and he realized, I've denied you three times. Peter was just distraught. And it wasn't until really that morning on the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection when Jesus fixes them all breakfast and he calls Peter to him and says, Peter, do you love me? And three times he asked Peter if he loves him because three times Peter denied him and three times Peter said, I do. It's not a matter of how perfect you are. It's a matter of your heart. Are you crushed when you sin? Are you broken? Do you regret it? Not because as, as Judas' regret was because it didn't work out the way he wanted But do you regret it because of your love and your affection for Jesus, as we clearly see in Peter? You can't, there's two bookends. You you can't see a a greater contrast between one who denied him, but then repented and was restored and, and, and repented because of his love for Jesus and one who denied him. And in a sense, repented of that in that he threw the, as we don't have time to read it this morning, but you know the story. He, he, he was so frustrated over everything. He went to the temple and he took the 30 pieces of silver that they had given him to, to, to uh, turn Jesus in and he threw it down. As, but he, he didn't repent. He was just angry over how nothing's working out and the, and the money didn't make him happy and none of that worked out. And he went and he hanged himself. Not again, not because he was repentant, but just because He was so without hope. We see, again, the story of him when we look at Matthew's gospel where Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table, chapter 26 of Matthew. Let's go with verse 14, chapter 26 with Matthew. Here's what happened. Right after the experience there in Bethany where Jesus was anointed with the perfume and, and uh, Judas says, that's too expensive. We should have given it to the poor. Jesus corrects him on that. Basically what he says, and the gospel writer Matthew tells us, Jesus says this, verse 11, for the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ornament on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told of her in memory of her. I'll I'll preach that text if I'm here long enough sometime about the poor always being with you. He's not saying we don't care for the poor, but he he is making a strong statement about who he is, the glory of God. This is the right time. She didn't do anything wrong and so on. It's interesting. He doesn't really rebuke Judas at this point. You know, he he doesn't lay him out in front of everybody. It's sort of a mild rebuke. But even, now listen carefully. Even that mild rebuke of saying, no, um, poor is always going to have with you. This was a good thing. It was worth it. That was the last straw for Judas. 
No doubt Judas had seen time and time again what he would see Jesus as squandering opportunity for power and for wealth. And this was just the last straw. So the gospel writer Matthew says that immediately after that experience in Bethany, verse 14, then one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and says, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? He is just simply trying to clearly make money from Jesus. What will I get? I've got a, I've got, look, I've been three years following this guy around. I've already lost some of the best income years of my life. And it's obviously not going where I think it's going to go. So I got to cut my losses and get what I can. And so I can, and why did they have to have Judas? Well, it, it, it was the week of the Passover. Jerusalem was packed. Jesus was still popular. I mean, frankly, sometimes we say the, the group that, that celebrated Jesus on the Palm Sunday was the same people who turned on him at the crucifixion. That's probably not the case, to be frank about it. Maybe some of them were, but those are two different groups of people, frankly. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem. And the last thing the, 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 the Jews needed was to arrest Jesus and have a mob start coming to his defense and then the Romans come and break up this. That's the last thing they wanted. So where can we get him off by himself, late at night, arrest him, try him, convict him, and kill him before anybody really knows what's been going on? That's the whole point. And Judas says, I've got some information. I can take you to where he is. Nobody will be around him. No crowds will be around him. Nobody will know you're arresting him. And by the time you've convicted him and, and, and sentenced him to death or, or whatever you're going to do with him. So that's why the Jewish authorities needed Judas, and he knew it, and he felt like this was his last chip to play. This was it, and he was going to get his 30 pieces of silver, and so he did. Now, the interesting thing is Jesus knows he's going to do it, so then we get into the next part of chapter 26 of Matthew, the institution of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Again, I don't have time to preach that whole text, but I do want you to know that even that night when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he washed Judas's feet. He cared for him immensely. And he took care of Judas and he loved Judas right up to the very end, even though he knew what Judas was going to do. Judas is amazingly a tragic example of someone who had the greatest, maybe one of the greatest opportunities in the history of humanity, and he wasted it. How many of us would want to spend three years listening to our Lord, sharing meals with him, walking the countryside with him, watching him do these physical miracles. Judas had all of that, and he wasted that opportunity. Listen, some of you live here in the United, well, all of you live here in the United States of America, and you have a wonderful opportunity here that many of your fellow humans around the globe don't have. You can go buy a Bible anywhere you want it. You can listen to Christian radio and podcasts anytime you want. You can come gather for church and nobody's got there taking your license plate or following you home to take away your job or perhaps imprison you. You're under no persecution here at all. You've been given, you've got more teaching available to you than any generation has ever had. I mean, it's just unbelievable how we can just go online and listen and watch TV and hear great preaching and all of that and, 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 and come together and read God's word together. We've been offered so many things. And how many of us squander that? As I said before, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is root of all evil. If anything else, it tells us 
you've got to really guard your heart about the things of this world. That the love of money will get you to lie, it'll get you to cheat, it'll get you to hurt other people. It's, 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 it's absolutely ruinous. And it really was the love of money that took him down this path. And don't lose sight of the fact that once he got some money, he was so distraught over everything that he didn't even any longer want it. Judas is also an example that right up to the end, Jesus still cared for him and loved him. But something happened. There at the very end, when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. Let's go back and look at this real quickly. Verse 20 of chapter 26 of Matthew. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, well, I'm going to tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And nobody looks at it. Hey, it's got to be Judas. Think about that. Oh, yeah, well, it's him. No. Is it, they, how, they, didn't, they, they thought it was more likely that it would be themselves than Judas. Lord, is it I? He answered and said, who dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as written, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Let me say something else about this. One of the things the story of Judas tells us is that even the most deplorable plot of humans and even the most deplorable plot of Satan cannot thwart the will of God on this earth. Okay? Doesn't matter. Got one of your 12 who turns on him. He gets arrested. He gets beaten beyond recognition. He gets crucified. And God uses it for your redemption and his glory. Okay? So the son of man, he says, this is important though. It would have been better, Jesus said, for that man if he had not been born. Judas, this, the Judas said, well, who, who betrayed him said, is it I? And Jesus said to him, you've said so. And again, folks, every time you read this in the different Gospels, the other disciples don't understand what that means. They, they don't believe that Judas is the one. And Jesus finally said, what you have to do, go do quickly. And they figured we had to go buy something or do something. They didn't even put that together. But that point, Judas understands what's going on. Listen, at that point, I believe here's what happened. At that point, God's grace, in a sense, was withdrawn from Judas. At that point, his heart was so hardened that he was past the point of no return. Now, again, it's 1124 on Mother's Day. I don't have time to unpack all of this. The Lord lets me stay here with you. We'll unpack some more of it. But I do know this. I used to hear growing up from preachers all the time, and I believe it. There is no guarantee that the calling and the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life today will be there tomorrow. It is a dangerous thing to play around with that and to say, well, I can put it off. I can put it off. Because at this point, he reached that point of no return. And I believe his heart was so hardened, he no longer responded to God's grace. So he betrays Jesus that night. He gets the money. And the disciples are there when they can't believe. And he betrays him, as you know, with a kiss. In this amazing way in the darkness. Of course, Peter pulls out his, his sword and Peter is trying to defend Jesus and uh, <laughs> cuts off an ear and it goes from there. 
But they arrest Jesus and take him. And the gospel, uh, the writer Luke in the book of Acts, if you want to turn over to Acts chapter 1, gives us a little ending of what happened to our friend Judas. Not really our friend. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And they went and they entered an upper room where they were staying. And Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, all the disciples are there. All those were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer and with the women and with Mary and the mother of Jesus. Verse 21, So the men who have accompanied us during all this time, the Lord Jesus, went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until this day when he's taken them from us. And one of these men must become us a witness of his resurrection. And they found two, Joseph called Barabbas and one Justice called Matthias. And they prayed and they said, Lord you know the hearts of all. Show us one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in the ministry from Judas. This is, listen, he turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots and it fell upon Matthias and he was numbered among the 11. He was replaced by another very ordinary man that we know nothing about. He was replaced. So we look at Judas's life. We see a wasted opportunity. We see one who had a love of money beyond all else. We see one who absolutely basked in the grace and the love of Jesus until the very end. We see one who was so persistent in pursuing his own agenda and resisting the gospel that there came a point of no return. And we see one in whom Jesus said one of the most terrifying things in all the scripture, it'd be better for him to have never been born than for this to happen. But again, we see in all of this that none of it thwarted God's plan for redemption and glory and for you and for me. And we see one who did not repent of his sin as Peter did, but one who found no hope in the things he was looking for, but didn't look to Jesus either. Dear ones, Judas is a story that reminds us we must all constantly make sure in our heart that what we really love and what we really want is Jesus, not the things he provides. You know, if this doesn't work out for me, then it's no good. That's exactly what Judas said. And the answer to that is to turn from those things that you're looking to bring you happiness and pour your heart into Jesus and call out to him and, and call him Lord and follow him and let him bring you happiness because there isn't any amount of money in the world that's going to take care of you when you get ALS. There isn't any amount of money in the world that's going to take care of you when your child is killed in an accident. Do you understand what I'm saying? The money that you're willing to, and the things that you want that are so powerfully important to you are just like Judas. You'll just throw them in a field. You'll throw them at the feet of, of, the, of, of the officials, and they'll use them to buy a field to bury people. It'll be pointless. The stuff that you think makes you happy does not. In fact, it brings you sorrow and heartache and joy. And the reality is, when you go to the funeral of one who knew Christ and was in him, Yes, you weep, but listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now, look, there's nothing precious about death. 
Those of us who are lost our mothers and we're thinking about that today. Those of us who've lost children. Those of us who've lost loved ones. Those of us who may be facing death in the very near future. Everything about it says it's not precious. It's awful. It's, it's something to avoid. But it's precious to God. Why? Because it's his saints he's calling home. It's his children he's calling home. It's precious to him because he's calling those he loves to him. That's why it's precious. When we see it from that standpoint, the the scripture says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We belong to him. And Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 14 when he says, I go and prepare a place for you in my father's house and I will come again and bring you where I am. Look, there's so much about heaven I don't know. But I do know this. It's a great place. It's an unbelievably good place. It's a real place. And it's prepared for those of us who know him. And it gives us all we could ever want, ask or think. And it's our inheritance. And let's don't focus on the little stuff here right now. How do I feel and what's going on is this whole prosperity gospel? Is he giving me everything I want? Listen, you can look at the prosperity. That's what Judas was after was the prosperity gospel. Come to church and Jesus will pay your rent. Come to church and he'll take care of your house payment. Come to church and he'll take care of your cold, your flu, and your bursitis. Jesus looked at that lame man and said, look, I know you're lame, but let me tell you something. Your sins are forgiven and you're going to walk for all eternity. That's where real joy and satisfaction is found. And precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints. I just, why? He's our father and and your father wants your children to be with him. And he's, you're precious to him. He's going to call you to himself at just the right moment and bring you home. And all those who are your loved ones that are in Christ, you're going to bring them home too. And we all are going to be together again. And that's better than any 30 pieces of silver. That's better than any treasure here on earth that rust and moth will corrupt and thieves will break in and steal. And your children will fight over after you're gone. Find your joy not in what he gives to you, but who he is and the love he gives to you. And look, find your eternal hope in the fact that your security, hope of eternal security is secure and you have a home in heaven and it is absolutely a certainty. And death, as we read even in Romans this morning, is no longer your enemy. No longer your enemy. I went to the funeral Friday of a co-worker whose mother died. So I have another friend who has a mother, actually has her funeral today. Friday at that funeral. Of course the children and the grandchildren were grieving. But she knew Jesus. And the amazing comfort of knowing that she is with the Lord. It's not just something we say off the top of our head. That's a reality. And we're going to be there too someday. And this corruptible put on incorruption, this mortal upon immortality. And Judas could not see any of that. All he could see was, how am I going to benefit from this? How am I going to make money from this? How am I going to get power from this? And they led him to death and destruction. Check your hearts today, loved ones. Are you chasing Jesus just for what you can get out of it? Or are you desiring, as Peter was, to be with Christ because of your love for him?